Welcome to Squawk 5353, the Private Pilot Podcast, Episode 23. I'm your host, Izzy Simon, a private pilot sharing my tips and tricks to make the skies a safer place. I know in last week's episode, I promised an interview with my former flight instructor, but due to scheduling conflicts, we had to postpone that interview. So instead, this week's topic will be cross-country flight planning. Stay tuned for all this and more and Squawk 5353. Before we begin this week's episode, I'd like to encourage you to consider donating to my Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a way for you to financially support the show. The show takes a lot of time each week to research, record, edit, and produce. It would mean the world to me if you went over to my Patreon and considered donating to the show. And now to the main topic of today, cross-country flight planning. Cross-country flight planning not only is useful in your private pilot training, but also in your days as a practical private pilot. Being able to understand how to plan your flight is a crucial step for any pilot. Although electronic flight bag apps make planning your flight a little bit easier, it's still an important step for all pilots to be able to do it manually in the case that their electronic flight bag fails or they simply want to do some calculations mid-flight. Before we get into the guts of cross-country flight planning, it's important to understand the vocabulary associated with cross-country flight planning and most flight planning in general. Typically, pilots will use nautical miles, which is often abbreviated to NM, but sometimes you will see SM as an abbreviation for statute miles. Your top of climb is abbreviated by TOC, and this is the point when a pilot reaches the desired cruising altitude. As a pilot descends from their desired cruising altitude to begin their approach phase, this is known as your top of descent, and it often is based on a 500 foot per minute or 3 degree descent to the runway. Although not inherently specific to cross-country flight planning, oftentimes your POH, or pilot's operating handbook, will have specifications about your aircraft's performance. When planning, your true course is the line which you draw on your chart. Your true heading is your true course adjusted for your wing correction angle. Your wing correction angle is exactly what it sounds like. Depending on the winds aloft, you may have to change your heading so that you maintain the proper direction of flight. Your magnetic heading is your true heading adjusted for magnetic variation, and your compass heading is your magnetic heading adjusted for your compass deviation. Your magnetic course is your true course adjusted for magnetic variation and should be used to determine an even or odd altitude to fly at, and should be referenced when flying VOR courses or Victor Airways. Even for me as a certified private pilot, I still often find myself confused by the difference between true course, true heading, your magnetic heading, your compass heading, and your magnetic course. Your DPE is likely to ask you about all these different definitions, but only with a sectional chart and your cross-country flight plan in front of you. This happened for me on my checkride and I was able to use context clues and referencing my own work so that I was able to come up with a definition for each of these terms. And now into the planning of your VFR cross-country flight plan. Before you begin planning your cross-country flight, it's best to gather the following items. Current charts, 
a blank navigation log, your POH performance data, a flight computer, an E6B, and other things that you might need in order to calculate your cross-country flight plan. Gather all your tools in one place and have a large table for you to set up on. Most importantly, your chart should be of easy access and should allow you to see from your departure airport all the way to your arrival airport, if at all possible. First and foremost, you should pick out your route. Try to choose the most direct route, but consider terrain during the climb and route and descent. Use Victor Airways if possible, obvious landmarks, and navigation aids if available. Make sure they are easily identified checkpoints along the route. Power lines, private airports, and train tracks are usually not easily identable, even though many private pilots will choose them as their checkpoints along their flight. Up here in Wisconsin, we're blessed to have many lakes, so I typically will choose 3 to 5 lakes every 30 to 50 nautical miles along my route, just to ensure that I'm still flying in the correct direction. While you want to fly in the most direct route possible, make sure to avoid restricted airspace and MOAs. Plan for appropriate clearances, weather minima, and equipment required for Class Bravo, Charlie, and Delta airspaces. If you're unsure about weather minima, you can either use your far aim or go back to Episode 2 of this podcast where I go into more detail about airspace and weather minimum. While in Wisconsin it is relatively flat, make sure you don't have any terrain along your proposed road of flight that might be higher than the aircraft service ceiling. As a personal rule of safety, make sure that you have at least 2,000 feet obstacle clearance between you and the ground below you. Next, be sure to study the airports along the way. Make sure that they are appropriate with things like sufficient runway lengths and available services. While you should be thinking about your departure and arrival airports, make sure that you also think about airports during your en route phase of flight. In the case that you do need to divert to a different airport, make sure that you have a complex understanding of the airports around you during your en route stage of flight. For VFR flight during the day, make sure that you have enough fuel to get you to your destination plus an extra 30 minute reserve. If you are stopping for fuel or you are stopping at your destination for fuel, make sure that they have fuel services 24-7 if you need them at night and check the fuel prices. There might be a cheaper option at a local neighboring airport. In case of an in-flight emergency, make sure that there are suitable landing sites both on and off the airport. Especially in a single engine aircraft, don't fly long distances over lakes or open water. Make sure that you plan at a sufficient altitude so that in case of an emergency, you have the ability to choose where you want to land and not be forced to land somewhere because of your low altitude. Finally, this cross-country flight planning takes a whole new turn when it takes place during night. During night, cities and highways are usually your visual references. Be especially alert to mountainous terrain, instrument conditions, airport lighting availability, and emergency landing sites. Make sure to pack a flashlight, extra batteries, and emergency supplies. For cross-country flight at night, you have to have enough fuel to get you to your destination as well as a 45-minute reserve. Now that you understand what you're going to be doing in your cross-country flight planning, it's time to get started. Use a plotter and a pencil to draw your intended route of flight. In your navigation log, which you can find just about anywhere on the internet and print off, 
begin to enter the structure of the flight plan. Some of the details will be added later, many of which are dependent on the current weather. For now, start with the departure airport at the first checkpoint box. The first checkpoint should be an easily identifiable point approximately 10 to 15 miles from the departure airport. It usually goes along with the top of climb. The top of climb is the point at which the airplane reaches its initial cruising altitude, as I mentioned before. This point is determined from the climb performance charts in the POH. The top of climb will be determined when you are confident in the winds forecast for your flight. Because winds aloft change drastically, it's important to plan for a smart altitude which is both fuel efficient yet safe. Identify and mark checkpoints along your route of flight with an X. The checkpoints should be evenly spaced along the route and have clearly visible references such as freeways, airports, tall towers, cities, or something like that. This route should have checkpoints every 15 to 20 miles, especially if your route is changing often. If you're flying a more direct route, it's easier to have less checkpoints. If your airplane's airspeed indicator is in miles per hour instead of knots, you should use statute miles for distance, but as most airplanes are in knots, you typically should use nautical miles. In the checkpoint box, enter or draw a description for each checkpoint you have identified, for example the intersection of roads, which airport, the height of the tower, and then the distance to the next airport. If the checkpoint is identified by a VOR, NDB, or cross radials, enter each NAVA name, frequency, OBS setting, and note whether it will be a to or from indication. If communications are required, such as transitioning airspace, getting flight following, or a freight service station, write down who you'll need to contact in the communications box, typically in the lower right-hand corner, but also sometimes found within the flight plan, especially if it's a nav frequency. For each checkpoint, enter route and altitude you plan to fly at, and enter that information into the route and altitude boxes. Use the plotter to find the true course you'll fly from each checkpoint and enter the value in the true course box. Use longitude lines to measure the true course near the midpoint of the leg. Now that you've found your true course, now it's time to find the distance between checkpoints. Enter the value in the leg distance box. Make sure that you use the correct scale, depending on if you're using a sectional, VFR terminal, and nautical miles or statute miles. You can do this for each checkpoint except for the top of climb because you don't know where it is yet and the checkpoint following the top of climb. Use the chart to find the magnetic variation for each leg and enter that information into the magnetic variation box. If the variation is not a whole number, round to the nearest number. Choose an altitude and reference the magnetic course. If you're heading east, you should fly at an odd thousand plus 500. And if you're flying west, from 180 to 359, you should fly at an even thousand plus 500. Finally, you should check the notams for not only your route of flight, but also your arrival and departure airports. This way you're not scrambling while getting your ATIS to take in all the new information when you could have just read the notams and figured out that taxiway alpha might be closed. All the steps before this can all be done on any day leading up to the flight. However, on the day of the flight, there are a few things you need to do. First and foremost, you should get the most recent weather. 
use METARs, TAFs, and winds aloft to calculate takeoff, climb, and route and descent performance. Using this information, you also can calculate your wind correction angle and ground speed. Again, double check the NOTAMs, TFRs, area forecasts, prognosis charts, airmets, sigmets, convective sigmets, pyrops, and TAFs to determine if the flight can be accomplished. If you were confused by any of the abbreviations that I just said, make sure to check out last week's episode where I talk about aviation weather. Using this information, you can calculate when and where your top of climb will occur and complete the flight plan boxes for ground speed, time, fuel burn, and magnetic heading. Now you must complete this step for each of your legs, making sure that you calculate your ground speed, your compass heading, magnetic heading, time between waypoints, time en route, fuel consumption, fuel required, and make sure to note what power setting you are going to be used. Although I never do it, you can take the option of finalizing your section chart by marking the route of flight with a color, for example a yellow highlighter, and circle your checkpoint in a different color. If you would like to, you are able to file your flight plan and obtain a weather briefing. Typically, however, I will not file a VFR flight plan, but rather I'll get flight following in air, which is just a much more flexible option. While electronic flight bag apps can plan these flights for you, oftentimes it's a great way to build a connection with your aircraft as well as become a more proficient and better pilot. If you use your electronic flight bag, or EFB, you oftentimes will not be as connected or have a complex understanding of the route you're going to fly. If you use your flight plan, however, you'll be able to check out the waypoints along the way and make sure that you're still flying on your desired course. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Squawk 5353. If you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to share it with a friend. Your publicity greatly helps the show grow. Also, if you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to subscribe in whatever podcast listening platform you were using. A link to all the resources used in today's show can be found in the show notes. To access the show notes, simply click the player art in whatever podcast listening app you are using. Also in the show notes is a link to my Patreon, as I mentioned in the beginning of this week's episode. Again, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Squawk 5353, and let's make the skies a safer place. Mm-hmm.